back, everyone, and I wanted to introduce Stephen Barnes. Uh, you have a really interesting background, um, particularly in writing science fiction, horror, and fantasy. And uh, I, I just I just noticed you were on the Daily Show's YouTube channel, uh, you know, today I think actually. Yes. So um, I'd definitely be interested in your journey, your background, all the way from the beginning. Where you're from, uh, mentors, and things like that. So just brief well, bio I think for everybody. What you're, you're going to want to do is to ask, you know questions that are in prompts because otherwise you know i could wander off in any direction so I, I was born in los angeles and what and kind of how did you get into the writing game well i'd always been a writer i when i was in college i finally decided that i wanted to make uh, a go of it professionally i wanted to take a shot at seeing whether or not i could take this thing that i loved and make enough money at it to support a family um, and so I started, I dropped out of college actually, and started taking jobs in and around Hollywood as a tour guide at CBS, you know, working in bookstores, working in movie theaters, just anything that would give me an opportunity to meet people, get some sense of what this was other than just the, the glamour, uh, facade, you know, how, what is it as a business? Um, and at the same time, of course, I was writing stories uh, to try to get published, you know, in that way. So it was uh, my first publications were in um, fanzines, you know, and uh, semi-pro zines, you know, fifth of a cent a word and stuff like that. Um, and I started looking for mentors, people who could guide me and help me understand what I was missing in terms of my of my writing. And after probing around and asking lots of people, I was lucky enough to meet Larry Niven. And uh, was one of the great science fiction writers of the 20th century. And Larry took me under his wing. So that was that. And I actually, um, the way I got my first gig in Hollywood was that Larry was approached to write an adaptation of a Stanislaw Lim short story, and he didn't want to do it, but he knew I was interested in working in the industry, and so that was how I got my, you know, my first uh, a gig over at Disney writing uh, writing that story. It was never filmed. Uh, the, the their planned anthology show never took off, um, and um, get my first agent that way, and that led eventually to. Uh, working on the Twilight Zone, the re renewal of the Twilight Zone. And that was kind of how things got started there. And how did you get to know Larry Niven? Like, how did he... How oh, did you I hunted him down. Mentor? You know, he... Uh, I talked to a friend of mine uh, about... I, I said, you know, I need to meet some writers who are actually doing... I mean, in my life, pretty much everything that I've accomplished, I've accomplished by finding people who've already done it. Mm -hmm. And asking them, you know, what do they do? How did they feel? What were their thought patterns? What were their strategies? Uh, and so that was true with uh, with writing as well. This friend said that Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell hung out at the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society in Los Angeles on Thursday nights in Burbank. So I went out there and introduced myself to him, and uh, that was uh, that was the beginning. And when you were kind of approaching mentors when you were kind of identifying who you wanted to talk to was it the writing was it the opportunity was it what sorts of things were we working for and how did you approach somebody because at the time uh, availability you know basically and, i yeah. i approached every anybody that i knew that i could find i mean i didn't know any writers you know 
Um, so any writer that I could actually sit down and talk with or stand up and talk with in this particular instance, I was going to try to, to you know, get a sense of whether or not they might be open. Um, so it was, it was purely, you know, anybody, everybody. And there were a number of writers that I'd approached prior to that who, you know, said no, they said it politely, but uh, I was going to keep asking until I got a yes. And in terms of selling short stories, I'm going to jump back. We'll get to the Hollywood sure. shortly. When was your first big break with just in writing, particularly? Not necessarily. That was the one thing with Larry. Okay. You know the the big bright the big I'd I'd had a couple of stories published in in real magazines by that time, but I was still I mean it's you know it's just it was just miserably slow. Um, but Larry read a few of my stories and thought that I had a spark of something. Um, and he gave me a chance to look at a story that he had written years before, but had never been able to finish to his satisfaction. And, you know, it was like, would you like to take a, a shot at this? And, you know, Larry has said that that is the, the lowest risk form of collaboration, you know? Uh, so I looked at the story and fortunately, I, I could see what was wrong with it. And fortunately, it wasn't something with the physics or the biology or the quality of the writing per se, because at all those things, Larry was just, you know, above me. Um, but he didn't have the psychology right. The, there was something wrong with his understanding of group psychology. And I could see it. And it was like, oh, he doesn't realize X. Uh, he had something terrible happening in a colony of no more than 300 people, I think it was. Uh, and people were reacting to it as if they'd read about it in the paper happening to somebody on the other side of the country. No, if there are only 300 people in your entire world, what happens to anybody is like it's happening to your twin brother. Yeah, it's Dunbar's number, right? Yeah. So I, I realized that there was room for me to contribute something to the story. And um, that was that was the beginning and that one that story was the locusts it was published in analog and it was nominated for a hugo um and that was the really you know i think that i can pretty much say that was really the beginning of my career now as you know for folks who are just starting their career you have kind of a mantra you know one sentence a day can you explain a little bit a little bit about yeah that i mean there's it's, i think it's a six-part process but the first step is write it write one sentence a day just make a commitment you're going to write one sentence a day every day um anybody has time for a sentence a day you're, if you say you don't you're lying you're lying i mean the average the average person is watching three hours of television a day mm -hmm. you know i've had people spend 50 sentences on social media explaining why they don't have time to write one sentence if if you if you can't write a sentence a day, it is not because of strategy. It's not because of time management. It's because you are afraid. You're terrified. You're not, you're, you're not giving yourself access to your own creativity. So that's your first step to find out why are you lying to yourself? Why are you doing this? I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of what I call atomic goal setting, where you atomic in the sense of you find the smallest unit that is still meaningful. And it's preferably something that takes less than five minutes a day. Um, there are things like that with exercise. There are things like that with medicate with meditation, the things like that with your finances. Um, and so you start with the smallest unit. And then once you've got that habit, you begin to build it up. So the first step with a writer is uh, a sentence a day. The next 
step is you write one to four short stories a month because the next problem people have after just writing is they're trying to write novels mm -hmm. and they've never sold a short story. That's like saying you want to run a marathon when you've never run around the block. It's just, now that's bad strategy, but it, it can also be avoidance. You know, if you, if you never submit something, you never have to deal with the reality of whether you're quote unquote, got it or not. Now, I personally don't believe in talent. I believe in hard work and honesty over time. Um, so if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to model, you know, to, to, to read and write and commit and be honest and, and get feedback, I think basically anybody with average command of the, of the English language can sell stories. You know, if, are you willing to put a thousand hours into it? 10,000 hours, you know, 10,000 hours, you know, you, that's, that's a novelist, you know, and, and probably a decent one. Um, but a thousand hours will get you through the gate on, in most fields, you know, not as a brain surgeon, you know, or jet pilot, but, you know, salesman, writer, artist, you know, just being able to, to represent on a basic level. Yeah. You know, so if there's a goal that you have and you are not willing to put in that, you know, like when they say 10,000 hours to mastery, what they really mean by that is that all masters have put a minimum of 10,000 hours into it. It isn't that if you spend 10,000 hours, you're going to be the best. It's that if you're not willing to put in 10,000 hours, forget about it. Go find something else to do. Um, the person who is willing to commit to 10,000 hours or even 1,000 hours to be good at something is going to get there. You know, assuming you know, a few other minimum conditions in terms of of modeling excellence, telling the truth uh, in their work. In other words, you write what turns you on, what what makes what scares you, what excites you. You're not trying to write for the market. You're trying to write for well. It's important to write for the market, but I assume that you want to write because there's stuff that you enjoy reading. So if you write the kind of stuff you enjoy reading, you'll be okay. And, and not only that, but you'll also know where to send it because you'll send it to the same places that you read it. Yeah, and so, I, I, think, I think what you're saying is extremely important because people who start with novels, you, you, like you, as you noted, there's not, you don't have a lot of practice, but also you also didn't, don't get a lot of feedback until it's done. Right. So you can't fail faster, right? Yeah, so, well, not only that, but like imagine if you spend two years working on a novel, that's two years of your life, man. Exactly. And the, it, the if it gets rejected, it can feel like getting hit in the gut with a sledgehammer. But if you spend three days writing a piece of flash fiction and you send it out and before, you know, in this instant you send it out, you're starting to work on the next piece. By the time that story gets rejected, you could be three stories down the road. And so it's like, you know, I'm, it's just part of the process, just part of the process. I'm just working. I'm just working. You know, it's it's you get used to getting beat up in that sense. And you find out, oh, I can get hit in the face and survive. I can get a rejection slip and survive. It's not the end of the world. And if you talk to other writers, you find out that rejection is just a part of the game. So developing the emotional strength to keep going after you've been rejected is critical mm -hmm. in sales, in dating, you know, uh, you know, learning how to lose with, with grace in, in the martial arts. You know, it's lose, 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 win, lose, 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 win, win, lose, lose, win, win, win. You know, it, it, even for a champion, um, 
you have to redefine what losing means and you have to give yourself the time to lose and recover and get back up so you don't want to invest so much that it really is my god i've spent two years of my life and nobody wants this it's over you know i and you know just that's just a bad strategy it's a very non-optimal strategy uh and the fact is that every professional writer i know can write short stories they may not do it anymore but they can and they did um but you know short stories are where you learn your craft novels are where you get paid now how many so for new writers yeah how many short stories do you recommend that they write i would say that you my pattern goes like this, and I'll go ahead and tell you. It's part of the, the life writing system of writing. Uh, you can find out more about that at www.lifewritingpremium.com. The link's below. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, put that. make sure to put that in the notes. Um, but the first step is you write a sentence, at least a sentence a day. And the, the trick to that is you can write a book a year with just one sentence a day because of the psychology involved. By the time you sit down to write a sentence, after a few days, you're gonna write a paragraph. You know, it's like, as long as you're there, you might as well. But if you just write a sentence, you've done your work for the day. If you have to quit then, no guilt. You're, you're, you're keeping the connection between your dream state and your fingers on the typewriter alive. Really, really super, super critical thing to understand. Your, the, the creativity is a matter of connecting the dream state and the conscious mind. That's really all it is in, in a lot of ways. Um, the second step is you write one to four short stories a month. The third step is you finish what you write and submit it. The fourth step is you don't rewrite except editorial request. That once you finished a story and polished it, you, you put it in the mail, you don't go back to that story. You go forward into your next story. The fifth step is you read 10 times as much as you write. And the, the sixth step is that you repeat this process 100 times, 100 times. The average writer, short story writer, writes somewhere between 20 and 40 short stories before they get published. So double or triple that number to give yourself a lot of breathing room so that the voices in your head that are screaming at you, I can't do it, I don't have any talent, it's too late, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too this, I'm too that, those voices in your head never go away completely. But you can learn that those voices aren't you. That's one of the most important lessons in meditation. The voices in your head are not you. That sends you into the question, well, who are you? You are the one listening to the voices. Who is that? Good question. You'll spend the rest of your life figuring that out. So I would say a hundred stories from not from right now. Just say, you know, and that that could take what, two years? If you're writing a story a week? You know, you want to do it faster than that, write two stories a week. You've done, you've done it in a year. Um, and uh, two years is about the time it takes to get an AA degree. Mm-hmm. You know, is, isn't that, you know, is, isn't it worth it? I mean, for God's sake, you, you want a career in writing, you know, then you think that it's easier to do that than it is to get a master's degree? You know, really? Um, so look at, look at it as a professional development path. You know, um, and stop believing stories about people who, you know, who who drop out of heaven with their writing skills complete as if they, you know, sprang full born from the brow of Zeus. It's work. It's work. And the primary 
talent, as far as I'm concerned, in any field I've ever seen is the ability to focus your attention on something over time until you've learned it. That's what it is. You know, it, it, I don't know of a field. I mean, a person of normal intelligence, you know, they're, they're no brain damage, just, just a normal human being off the street. You take that person and you have them work an hour a day on almost anything. And in a couple of years, you come back, you know, they're going to be able to play piano. You know, they're going to have some decent, you know, they'd be decent at karate. They're going to golf okay. You know, uh, they may not be champions because that's a different level. You know, you want to be a champion. You talk about champions are practicing five hours a day. Now, does, is there innate skill? There probably is. But I have never found the concept of talent to be useful to anyone. I've only seen people use it as an excuse of why they don't try. Because life comes so, too easy for them sometimes. Well, no, it's that I, I'm not talented, so therefore, why should I bother? Now, there are people who have unusual skill the first time they try something. Every time I've seen it, it's because they already had some skill doing something else. In other words, a boxer walks into a karate gym. You know, and they're badasses from day one. Well, that's they already knew how to fight. You know, they already knew how to train. They were already in great shape. They didn't have to go through those things. So, you know, somebody is already great on one instrument. So they pick up another instrument. Wow, there's talent. Well, did you notice that they could translate some of the transfer some of those skills from over here to here? Somebody who, you know, is a great dancer goes to a yoga class and wow, look at their look at their yoga. I mean, please. That's what I see far more than somebody who just can do it might those people exist do baby mozarts exist probably i just don't find the concept interesting or useful right now i'm going to change gears a little bit sure who would you say your influences are <sighs> harlan ellison ray bradbury mickey spillane robert e howard um Robert Heinlein. I mean, and, and I owe so much to Larry Niven that I, I cannot begin to tell you how much I love that man and how much he contributed to my life. Um, I modeled, you know, so much on him in so many ways. Uh, I love movies, man. I love movies. I could watch, you know, three movies a day, you know, for, you know, every day. I just, I just love it. Um, and, you know, they're the storytellers and directors, people like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock and John Carpenter and James Cameron and uh, uh, just see so many. Uh, and now Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele is doing amazing things. He's he is doing things I've never seen anybody do on film. And um, if he if he pulls this third movie out, nope, I will put him in the same category as the Hitchcocks and Carpenters. The uh, but he's got to do it the third time. The trailer looks amazing for that. Thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that, I, you know, I, I know Jordan. And I mean, I've had the chance to actually sit down with him and talk with him on multiple occasions and have worked with him. Uh, and so I know something about his process and what it is that he does and how he does it. And I'm just telling you, this: the guy is for real. He's a good, decent human being, uh, modest human being. Uh, and a very, very, very skilled human being. And I'm just glad, you know, it, I, I'm feeling about him the same way I felt about Stephen King. Stephen King could have written anything, but he chose to write genre. 
and I'm just I'm delighted that we've got him because his level of skill and prolificness, you know, he could have been a Western writer and it would have been, you know, it would have been wonderful. He could have been a literary writer. It could have been wonderful. He chose he has, you know, the the literary taste of a scholar and the the aesthetic sense of an evil child. You know, he's, he's he's an amazing guy. So when you have when you have that, um, we get people who are creating the kinds of images that that I love, you know, Um, you know, the the booga booga stuff, the question of what's beyond the horizon stuff, the, you know, what is man that thou art mindful of him twisted, you know, with with giant, you know, carnivorous, you know, insects stuff. there are lots of people out there, you know, and William Shakespeare. I love Shakespeare. Um, I, I just think that uh, his work has crossed more genres, more cultures um, for a longer period of time has been interpreted in more different ways. And one of the things that's interesting about Shakespeare is that almost none of his stories were original. I mean, maybe maybe one or two of them, but that's just because we haven't found the, you know, the, the, the predecessors, the, the earlier works, you know, the, the Ur works. Um, but maybe A Winter's Tale, you know, is, is original. Maybe it is. Uh, there are a couple of them. Uh, but almost all of them were just reinterpretations of older stories. He simply did it better. You know, so looking at the question of how does Shakespeare get the, re- the, the results that he got? What is he doing? Endlessly fascinating. Uh, endlessly, you can go into that just endlessly. And I just, since I don't have time to become the kind of scholar that I might have, have wanted to be, my conclusion is that what I will do then is when it's time for me to input, I will input the best of the best of the best. And Shakespeare is in that category. You know, I think that what King is, is sort of a 20th century Mark Twain, you know, he's, he is the great American storyteller of the 20th century. He's not the best writer, but he's probably the best storyteller. You know, he just, he just does that, you know, sit by the fire, I'll tell you a story. And it's like, whoa, and we're off. One of my favorites by him is The Jaunt. Have you ever read that one? You know, I'm sure I did. Is that a short story? Is, Is that a short story? That's a short story. He's, he's, I like his short stories better than I like his novels. I understand. Yeah, he is. I, I like his novels. Don't be wrong, but his I'm, I'm reading. Like, I'm reading a collection of his short stories right now, After Dark or something like that. Oh, is, is um, that so the, yeah, I love his short stories. You know, so the man's a master. Yeah, it's in the Skeleton Crew. Um, uh-huh. it's, one of, it's a one about the a relatively um, early collection. Yeah. yeah, it's the one about the the mind where they kind of go to sleep as they get they teleport to Mars. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to be asleep when you. And then one of the guy's children wakes up. Oops. You know, or, you know, he's a little rascal, so he, you know, decides to take a peek. And at the very end of the story, he, I mean, the line is so good. It's something to the effect of, you don't know how long I was in there. I was, it was just so long. And it's just, his hair turns white and it's just really creepy. They don't talk about what happens there. Don't talk about, but it's just, it's so long. See, what I can tell you, uh, I've met King on multiple occasions. My wife actually played in his band, the Rock Bottom (laughs) Remainders. Um, and we had, we shared an agent at one time, Kirby McCauley. Uh, and when Stephen King wrote his children's book, Eye of the Dragon, 
my daughter, my, my wife was pregnant with my, with my daughter at that time. And I asked Kirby, you know, could you get me an autographed copy of, of Eye of the Dragon? And about four months later, package arrives in the mail. It was a copy of, uh, of Eye of the Dragon. And it was signed to Nikki. Welcome to life, sweetheart, Stephen King. And I'm telling you, he is a man who deserves his success. He's a good man and a funny guy with an evil sense of humor. Has the work ethic of a coal miner, you know, and, and an encyclopedic knowledge of the field. And that's, you know, you, you combine those things. If you have an encyclopedic knowledge of your, of your discipline and a work ethic that just has you at it hammer and tongs at least five hours a day, you're going to make it. How much does luck play in all this? Luck, it does not require an extraordinary amount of luck. In other words, given an average amount of luck, if you do an extraordinary amount of work, you'll get there. There are people who get luck. In other words, like his son was born into that family. That's insanely lucky. I mean, imagine the dinner table conversations about writing. But on the other hand, the man had to do his own work, didn't he? Stephen King didn't write those books for for, for him. Um, So I think that everybody... I think that absent extraordinary bad luck, you know, you got hit by a meteor, um, you know, or you, you literally, your brain doesn't work right. I mean, there, there are people who, who life cheats in that particular way. Um, given an average amount of luck, we all get opportunities. Opportunities come by, you know, you can position yourself so that you get opportunities. And if you're ready for the opportunity when it comes, they'll, there you go. But it's not you don't need extraordinary luck to have an extraordinary life. What you need is to know what it is that makes you happy, find a way to monetize it, and then put everything you've got behind that. You know, and I think that you should also aim at living a balanced life because you can, obsession is necessary to achieve mastery, but it's possible to become so obsessed that you unbalance your life and destroy yourself. That was the message for me in the movie, All That Jazz, which changed my life and saved my life in many ways. Um, so, you you know, it's like, the, it's odd, the, the harder I work, the luckier I get, or the luck favor is the prepared mind. You assume that the brass ring will come around and you, you swear that you are going to be ready when it comes. And then you position yourself by networking, for instance, you know, are you meeting people who are in the field that you want? You know, for me, there were three things that I wanted to master in my life. I wanted to master writing, I wanted to master martial arts, and I wanted to master relationships. You know, being able to have, you know, a marriage that could could, could last over 20 years with still be passionate and joyful, a safe place to raise a family. Uh, in terms of martial arts, to be able to feel that I'm on that path, part of that tradition, that I that that I have the approval. Well, to what put it one way, I wanted to be respected by the kinds of men I respected and desired by the kinds of women I desired. That that those things changed my life. Because then all I had to do is talk to those men and say, what did you do? Or talk to those women and say, what kind of guy do you want? And, you know, the kinds of women I desired wanted a guy who was intelligent and energetic and funny, uh, took care of themselves physically and emotionally, 
uh, knew where he was going and was getting there. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, to my shock, it wasn't something un, of, unavailable. That all the women I was attracted to wanted was a man who was really becoming what everybody wants to be in their heart, you know, actually following their dreams. Because that's all they're doing, and they're not perfect either. They know they're not perfect, but they want a partner. A lioness wants a lion in that sense, you know? Right. So um, if you associate with the kinds of people who are doing the thing that you want to do, you know, there's, there's that thing that, you know, if you tell me the 10 people, you know, who you spend most of your time with, you're going to be, you, if you average them out, you're going to be right in the middle of the pack. You know, if you hung out, if you hang out with 10 millionaires, you're going to be the 11th. You know, that that you, you're you going, if you hung around with 10 black belts, you're going to be a black belt. Mm-hmm. You know, if you hang around with 10 writers, you're going to be a writer. That, that, yeah, there is luck involved. And maybe there are blessings and gifts and so forth. But given an average amount of that, if you focus and you spend your days really working on on loving yourself and expressing yourself, you're going to be able to find someone to love you, you know, because once you you do that, your sense of self begins to expand and you see yourself in other people and you can love other people the same way you love yourself and you, you see yourself in them. And, you know, and it, and it's in, you will get entry into the tribe of people who are healthy in that way. And then all you have to do is to find the person in that tribe who has their green light on, who's saying, I'm ready. And you're saying, I'm ready. You both raise your hands. Well, you know, you're attracted to me. I'm attracted to you. Let's do this. Um, in the martial arts, it's not complicated. You simply do it for an hour a day. You know, you do that and you get there. I mean, really, it's it's not that difficult. If you, and in writing, if you write a, if you write a story a, a week, I'm sorry, you're going to publish. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, you, you try to reduce the magic. Most magic is just work in, in becoming a master of something doesn't mean being perfect. You know, there's a George Leonard, who was the men's fitness editor of uh, Esquire magazine, wrote a book called Mastery, where he, and he was a, a, an Aikido master up in Redwood City, California. Uh, I've got a great story about him, I might tell you some other time. Um, but he wrote a book called mastery and in it he says that the reason most people never achieve mastery really get really good at anything um is that they can't handle the fallow periods where it feels like nothing is happening and the truth is that during the fallow periods where you're when you're researching working it doesn't feel like you're getting better your your psychology is reorganizing at an unconscious level to support this thing that you want to do they people expect their skill to go like this and what it really goes is like this you know I'll do that on the screen. You know, so it my karate master, Steve Muhammad, who I is, is he's beyond the level of grandmaster. Mm-hmm. Uh within that system, I am a grandmaster. Uh he was the greatest fighter I'd ever known pound for pound. And uh he was faster than Bruce Lee at, at his peak. Um and he has promoted people to grandmaster and the Chinese martial arts community calls him a Sijo, which is basically somebody above the level of Sifu. 
It's someone who's created their own movement system. And I asked him, what is a master? He's a, he's a simply spoken man. He was born, you know, he was raised in Mississippi by his grandma, his grandparents who had been slaves. He, he was literally, literally was literally raised by slaves. Uh, he's in his eighties now. Um, and I asked him what mastery was because he's, he's a great man in many ways. He's flawed like all human beings, but he's the real deal. I mean, absolutely the real deal. And he, what he said, and I'm rephrasing this, is that when you have the basics of your craft integrated at the level of unconscious competence, such that you can create spontaneously under pressure, that's mastery. So I combined what George Leonard said and what Steve Muhammad said for my own definition of mastery. And mastery, the conclusion I come to is that mastery is a verb, not a noun. It's a vector, not a position. And when you have the basics of your craft and unconscious competence and have committed to your craft for a lifetime, you are on the path of mastery. And you are as much on that path as anyone else who's ever walked it, even if they are horizons distant from you. All there is is the path. That's all there is. So when I say I'm a master of these things, I'm not, it has nothing to do with being better than somebody else. It has to do with being better than I was. And I genuinely committed to these things. And this is me. And this is me for this lifetime. So yes, I have mastered relationships and I'm a master of the martial arts and I'm a master of writing. But it doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else. That's not, it's not the point. You're better I, than, yourself, I, than yourself. Yes, I'm better than myself. And I, as far as I'm concerned, all my friends are smarter than me. And as far as I'm concerned, it's not for me to judge myself in that sense. You know, I'm, I'm, they blow me away with their skill and their talent and their beauty and their intelligence and their form. Wow, you know, these are my friends. And yeah, honestly, they feel the same way about me. That's fine. But it's not about that. It's about, you know, how is your journey? You know, are you having a good time? You know, uh, you know are you having a good journey in life? You know, um, doing that and expressing yourself and helping people along the way and, and staying in touch with what turned you on when you were a kid and, and being as honest and kind as you can be while learning to be a little bit more efficient and a little bit more effective at the things that you care about. Um, you know, on, on my podcast, you know, which is, you know, you can find it at lifewritingpodcast.com, um, down below, <laughs> we talk about the artist's life and living it in balance with, with staying healthy and, and, and having love. You know, I think that, that the vast majority of human beings would like to be successful doing something that they love doing, physically healthy and vibrant and in love with someone who loves them and expresses that love in the nastiest way possible. How can I say that? Anyway. <laughs> you said it, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, you want the juice of life, you know? You know what I'm talking about, you hear me? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> On that note, let's talk Hollywood. <laughs> okay. So how-